heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Can I stream and record? Sure can. Nice. Here we go. All right. You ready to start? Yeah, why not? Let me make sure the video is still working. All right. Going live. What's going on, people? The current time in Moscow is 2000. 27, much later in the evening in Moscow today. Why am I not getting video anymore? I don't see video. Do you? Uh-oh. Uh, I'm not looking at the stream. Do have... Max is supposed to be jumping in too, actually. He just messaged me. Oh, nice. So I'm looking at the stream and I see no video. Hmm. Uh, do I have to... Oh, wait, now I see it. What the heck? Okay. I think. Now it's gone again. Do you see it on your end? I'm just checking it now. No, I see no video. This is what I get for moving to Jitsi. Can you hear the audio? Yes. Because I had everything worked out perfectly with Zoom. And now this. Hmm. And I know when, when this was happening on oh, Zoom. No, I got video. We got video. Yeah, and I think if I switch. I'm just not going to be able to watch the live chat, unfortunately, because if I switch windows. It's okay. I can watch the chat. It quits recording. Or so it seems. Maybe I can do this. It looks like we have video now. Hooray. Uh, it says, please check the video resolution. The current resolution is not optimal. Well, not much I can do about that. We're live. Current time in <laughs> Moscow. And it's much later in Moscow today than it was the last time we did this. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, time goes on, my friend. Oh, man. I think my um, I think my little options expert theory is, is holding true. Did you figure out the dates on that? I thought it was the 26th. At least I thought that's what it was last month, I believe. But did you see that chart that I sent you? Yes. That pointed to the yeah, options yeah. expiry every single month and just the massive red candles that we've seen for like the last four months? Yeah, I can bring that up for the... Uh, like, people are... Look. For the folks at home. I think TA is so stupid. Because <clears throat> I think that every time... Like, I think TI, TA is just confirmation bias because you're like, oh... The RSA or the RSI is oversold on the daily and the MACD just had like, I don't know. I just think it's 
maybe on like a macro scale, like guys who use long time frames for that kind of stuff, I get it. But like if you're looking at like TA indicators on like daily charts or like weekly charts and stuff like that, it's just dumb, man. So like when I look at stuff like that, I always look for fundamental explanations for patterns and charts, not technical patterns. Because I think those are stupid. It's like reading tea leaves. Because things right. are happening in the market because of the what people are doing, because of why they're acting. And when I pull up that chart that I think I think Mark Moss made this. He's the one who shared it with me. I don't know if he made it or not. He's um, awesome. <clears throat> but seeing that dip that's happened every month at the end of the month, right before the options expiry, I don't know, guys. I'm pretty sure that, that my theory for what's going on here is holding water. <laughs> makes a lot of sense i yeah. mean it's got nothing to do with like rsis or macd's or moving averages it's it's literally people pushing the price down before the contract expiry so they can capture premium it's i wonder if people like willie are just trading this i think so it should so, flatten eventually if that's if this is the case then it's it's if that cut and dried then you'd be so freaking easy to trade and right like, totally arbit <laughs> and for some reason when i talk about this on twitter nobody like pays attention i don't know like i don't know like, do we need I, to ex do we need to explain it more for folks <laughs> no i don't think that i don't think it's that i mean yeah there are people who are like can you explain this like i'm five i don't understand i mean it's it's we explained it the, in that last the first stream that we did mm. It's not that complicated, right? You, you write a covered call, you sell the covered call at a premium, so you're making a profit on selling that contract, and then as long as the price is below whatever the strike price was on your contract when it expires, well, then you capture that premium for free, and you don't have to um, sell your Bitcoin and buy back higher. So as long as the price is below your strike price when the contract expires, you're making free money. And I, <laughs> I think that there are people um, involved in this um, and they're, they like this premium. And I think that that might have, you know, I don't know who's doing it. Like, I have no idea. Maybe it's like a big coordinated. Oh, Max Hillebrand in the house. Max Hillebrand is definitely gonna have the good TA for us. Yeah. Max is a TA wizard. We all know it. Yes. But so I don't know. I've noticed on Twitter, not a lot of people really engage with this theory. And to me, I look at this and it's pretty cut and dry, right? Like this is what's going on. Um, there, there was probably some other extraneous factors contributing to price movements. Like, you know, nobody could have predicted 25% of the hash power. Um, oh, maybe you could kind of predict that, but, you know, China's on the other side of the world. Um, and then the, the FUD around the capital gains taxes and Yellen's crypto tax, all of which is just sort of speculative and highlights the need for why you would want something like Bitcoin in the first place. Um, but yeah, so anyway, we had this major dump, and it just so happens to coincide with the major dumps we've had at the end of every month in the last four months, right before the options expiry. Number go up, number go down. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Max? Good to have you with us, brother. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, both of you, for keeping up that live stream and for the invite. Looking forward to joining the conversation. Max, it's been so long since we talked, man. Uh, it's been a while, and uh, crazy. <laughs> but yeah, you've been doing good work uh, of content for a couple of years now. So uh, keep it rolling, guys. Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. What have you been up to? 
you know, uh, some general contribution still for, for Wasabi Wallet. Their Wasabi 2.0 is coming out quite nicely. Um, but also doing more and more thinking of uh, how to, you know, get people together and uh, bring some cool technology together and make them interoperable, uh, specifically in the podcasting space. Uh, I think there's a lot of cool things coming with podcasting 2.0. Hmm. Are you talking about like the the lightning stuff? Yeah, I mean that's for sure the the killer, right? That you can receive sats every minute someone is listening to your stream. I mean that's awesome. Um, but I think it's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, like this is the one obvious one for Bitcoiners, but actually like RSS is pretty much a honey badger as Bitcoin is, <laughs> just as a protocol. Uh, and with this new podcast namespace that has been created, that includes the value field for these lightning payments, but it also includes a lot of other things like chapters, time scripts, uh, trailers, uh, highlights, um, seasons and episodes, good categories. Like y you can do a whole bunch of things with this if you self-host and, and c create your own RSS feed. Uh, it's it's very very powerful. So we're talking about the potential to build platforms that make products and product discovery a lot more usable than just hey here's a link to my Sphinx. Right, because that that's one of the biggest problems that I've found with. Um, any sort of decentralized media services that they're the discoverability is so low if you don't already have an audience that's willing to bite the bullet on the transition cost um you're gonna have a hard time getting getting discovered on a lot of those platforms yes and i think that's kind of the bane of having that centralized platform with a huge information overload and i mean to an extent like the the free and open podcasting space is much larger um the the nice thing is that now with podcast index we actually have a uh, open source and open index of all the podcasts which by the way is about twice as large as the one from apple like they're way over three million uh, podcast rss feeds now indexed that's massive hmm. massive that's um, awesome. and of course you can search through them right and at podcastindex.org you get the uncurated pure list of it but the beautiful thing of this whole thing is as well that now you can easily create a new podcatcher experience, right? Where you curate for whatever thing you want to curate, right? Out of these 3 million podcasts, you choose the 25 top of them somehow highlighted in a certain way, right? And you build only that user interface hooked up to this open podcast index uh, to make all the heavy lifting in terms of discoverability and such. Is there a way to paywall stuff, Max? Do you know? Uh, as of now, no. Uh, and maybe there's, like, that's not even desired. Because one of the things with RSS, just as a base architecture, it's 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 like just a link of where, uh, or reference file of where right. you can find information, right, with a lot of metadata. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, once that is open, it's open, right? And making a paywall, I think, is just much more of a hindrance than actually being open and uh, you know productive for everyone. The the idea here is more a value for value kind of donation type system, um, specifically where the donations are automatically uh, kind of split up to all the creators uh, of this ecosystem, all the entrepreneurs who have skin in the game, 
uh, and I mean, first and foremost, those who have been neglected in the past, which are especially those podcatcher uh, developers in the indie space. Right? There, there are thousands of podcatchers already out there, uh, and none of them are cut in uh, the, the value streaming or uh, like the value flow in the incumbent system. But now if you're a podcatcher like Breeze Wallet, right, a Bitcoin Lightning Wallet that added a podcatcher, now they get 5% of all the donations that are done by the listeners for, uh, uh, fr from Breeze to all uh, these podcasts out there. I know uh, someone in my Discord the other day shared like a soft paywall, um, which I don't know, it's, it's not done. It's not really done at like the software level. So essentially all you're doing is putting an unlisted YouTube video behind uh, a payment screen, right? And, and theoretically, only one person needs to pay, right? And then that link can just get shared indefinitely after the fact. Um, so it's not a very elegant solution. And that's why I called it a soft paywall. Um, but I, I, yeah. I like what you're talking about, the value for value model more, especially now that we have that this idea of a paywall sort of seems a little bit um, archaic when you can stream money instantly uh, and pay by per byte or per second of content that you consume rather than a flat fee to unlock access. Yes, and I do believe that most users of uh, podcasts, uh, podcatchers, and most listener to podcasts receive a tremendous amount of value from the people speaking, right? and they are very happy to give back in any form, as Adam Curry likes to say, time, talent, or treasure. Right? So contributions from users of free software and from listeners of podcasts right, are is very, very much needed and welcome. Um, so I, I think it's now about building a nice user experience around this right that uh, and user interface right that it's obvious that you're actually sending some value and that you're rewarded in the gui itself for this right and then of course for the podcasters as well to make it you know intuitive um like i i i would have this cool idea that uh, because there's also a chapters tag uh, in this namespace uh, and here basically timestamps with a certain title uh, and uh, you could you could also add a lightning node value field in a chapter uh, specifically. So, for example, right now at the timestamp, I don't know, one hour, two minutes, right? Uh, all all donations that uh, come in go directly to the Venezuela Bitcoin fund, right? Uh, and now we can, as podcasters, you know, make uh, make a hype and be like, hey, this is an awesome organization. If you like it, smash the boost button right now, right? And and throw these heroes some sats. I'd have this kind of interactive format where the value flow is not just to the creator of the podcast, uh, but really to anyone with a Bitcoin Lightning node, uh, which is quite incredible. You, what else? That That is really cool. And the other thing for me that, that's a really big point of failure in uh, content creation is how badly the advertiser model needs to be disintermediated because I, I watch it. <clears throat> I watch it um, affect the types of content that people produce, like whether they're willing to admit it or whether they've even internalized it, whether or not it's implicit or explicit, I don't know. But there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the types of content people produce and the types of things that they say publicly, especially if they're a big name, are directly uh, inhibited or 
directly contributed to by who their sponsors are. And they will not criticize certain things. They'll avoid certain topics. They'll avoid certain guests that might be critical of products that their sponsors produce, uh, which in a space like Bitcoin is really dangerous, in my opinion. Absolutely. Advertisement is censorship. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, it's basically what, what you just said, right? You you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, if someone pays you, then you do change your behavior against uh, that person. Uh, and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's part of having skin in the game. Uh, you put up your reputation behind, you know, that advertisement that, that you bring up. So you might get defensive as soon as there are some accusations against uh, that, that brand or that company. Hmm. Um, it's basically just incentives, I guess. You know, people like, and that that's a thing. Like, I don't want to. Um, there, there are plenty of good people who produce content and have to have advertisers to pay the bills, right? So I don't think I'm not here to say um, that anybody who who avoids criticizing their sponsors, who pays their bills that they use to feed their families, um, is a bad person per se. I think that they're acting in accordance with their incentive and. What we need to do is fix the incentive so that they are not in a position where they're unable to criticize bad products and bad services. Well, I wonder if it's really this incentives or if it's really the tools that we have available. You know, I mean, there's plenty of content that people pay for today, whether through subscription or through a la carte. And I think one of the, the issues for for folks that are trying to start up and don't have, you know, an entire Netflix behind them or something like that is access to, you know, being able to take payments from anywhere around the world in small bites. And that's just, I mean, we've heard this kind of go back and forth on the micropayments thing before, but I mean, the, the jury is not out anymore, right? Like the, the jury is back in and like the value for value model is working on a micropayment scale. And the difference that Bitcoin brings is this open, interoperable global network that's real time settled and can work with very, very small amounts and very, very low friction. And it's completely, it, it's open, it's, the, the, it's permissionless and, and people are developing at a rate that is in, like impossible to even keep up with. You can watch like little parts of it happen, but I mean, it's happening before our eyes in, in a way that I, I find even trouble trying to keep up with. So uh, yeah, I mean, the future is bright, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of certain that we're gonna break the lightning network with this. <laughs> the sheer amount of transactions that I've personally both sent and received as a listener and creator of this podcasting 2.0 uh, thing, like it's it's staggering. I mean, uh, like probably a hundred x of my transactions, and I mean I'm already paying a bunch of people with Bitcoin over Lightning and and getting paid for my services too. So like I, I was making a decent number of transactions monthly, but now it's just ridiculous. <laughs> well, if it if it can't work for podcasting, I mean then it's you know it's not a robust system. So this is a good uh, way for it to test itself and and get better and stronger, right? Anti fragility. Yeah, but but I mean seriously, Lightning Network without Taproot and without uh, L two is basically useless. It's a fun toy, but n uh, like not as far possible to scale where we actually needed to be. So yeah, it's it's staggering that podcasting 2.0 works right now and I'm using it every day. But like in the back of my head, I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> this is gonna break. Oh no. <laughs> 
And uh, and Max, when is when is all that stuff gonna be ready? Taproot and all that. Uh, it's about two weeks, right? Is that that's what I heard. Yes, yes. On Moscow time, anyway. <laughs> no, but now we, now we, I mean, now we actually have two activation clients released. Yes. Um, right. So now we know. I think in the best case speedy trial, uh, in November you will be able to use um, like uh, it. It will be activated. I think lock in is somehow August fourth, uh, uh, the latest in speedy trial, and then uh, activation would be latest in November twentieth. And there's a bunch of trigger finger coders that have like all sorts of UASFs ready, like to go at any point if we just like you know are like F it, let's go. <clears throat> I, I I actually think that combination of speedy trial and UASF node is really nice, um, because now kind of the default Bitcoin core is of course speedy trial, um, meaning that many miners will be incentivized to signal early to uh, uh, within three months, right? But we already have people running UASF clients out there that have a much larger time horizon. I think lock-in is in 15 months or something. Um, so already now, like we have people dedicated to at least, you know, in one and a half or two years, Taproot will be activated regardless of what. Uh, but now miners have that incentive to actually activate earlier because of speedy trial. Um, which I'm uh, quite confident, actually, that we will see speedy trials succeed uh, and Taproot activate rather quickly. But then still, you know, even UASF users get their way. Yeah, me too. All right. Um, what do you think? You guys want to jump some topics here? Sure, yeah. Stuff. Actually, I had a question for Max. Max, um, you said that you're working as a contributor in some form and fashion, mostly like with Wasabi. What what do you, What is your... Are you just like self-taught in terms of, uh, are you just cleaning up documentation? Are you helping build out software protocols? I'm just curious like what your background and knowledge base is as far as uh, computer programming. Yeah, I, I kind of do everything but code. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it started with mainly, um, well, using the software and giving bug reports and feature requests. Like the first thing was, was a feature request to make hidden wallet dark mode. And the second thing was, hey, Tor is broken. <laughs> so those that was always the main thing. I'm a user of software, right? So I want it to work. Um, and I'm happy to contribute a bit of my time to make sure that it gets a bit better. Right? But that was the main thing. Um, but then eventually I realized, well, uh, like five peers registered for CoinJoin. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Nobody's using this. Therefore, I don't have any anonymity set and no privacy. So the tool is useless again. So great, okay, let's let's go shill it hard and let's tell everyone how it works and uh, and, and why it's such a powerful tool. And then that was then a lot of education in, in videos, in, in written documentation uh, and so on. But but always keeping a contact with the developers and kind of finding out who is working on what. Um, so more, more like this product management kind of thing, quality assurance maybe, um, and guiding where to go next. Um, like I'm, I'm always the the guy with the crazy impossible feature requests, uh, and then Nopara tells me why all of this is impossible, <laughs> but somehow that that leads to a, a roadmap that is somehow doable. And what do you, um, Max? What do you suggest to folks that are trying to follow the whole drama between Samurai and Wasabi Online, and 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 say probably a lot of it's over their heads, and they don't know, you know, which one's better or whatever. Like, what? How, how can people like navigate that space? Yeah, um, I think it's a lot of kindergarten. Uh, so probably the best of it is kind of to stay out of it. 
um, because it's a lot of true points being slung around in a very passive-aggressive way on both sides. Like there's there's true the kernel of this, right? and there are problems in in both, you know, software implementations that need to be fixed. Um, kind of my strategy in the past was just to focus on you know fixing it actually. And Wasabi 2.0 is is kind of like our effort for the last two years to address all of these problems, not by you know explaining FUD in, in, uh, in kindergarten on Twitter, but by actually improving the software so that the the major points that are being talked about are are kind of addressed and fixed properly on the architecture level, either not a hack uh, on top of a broken system. Um, so yeah, my my advice kind of right now, unfortunately, is wait a bit because we're not yet ready with, with Wasabi 2.0. It's getting there, but it's a, a shit ton of work. So right now, like, yeah, Wasabi is not optimal. Like, it works, but it's not great. Uh, we know that. We know that for a while. Um, but 2.0 is, is coming along nicely, and that has a lot of promise to fix and improve most things that are being talked about right now. Um, I asked you that question, Max, about... Uh... Your, your background and contributions mostly because I know I probably get a lot of listeners who are not developers um, or just know nothing about computer science and programming in general um, but they want to help they want to contribute and I like man I can't even tell you how many times I've pointed people towards some of the tutorials that you've done on World Crypto Network because you just did so many and they're so thorough and easy to follow um, you know it most anything that somebody wants to do, I'm like, oh, well, Max made a tutorial, a, a tutorial for that, so go check it out. It's it's easy to set up. Uh, you, you know, you'll you'll be self sovereign. You'll do it the right way. Uh, and and these days, I get so many messages from people who were like, hey, you know, I I've had my Bitcoin on a ledger with the default setup for the last three years, and I'm I'm ready to do more, but I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm like, well, you need to educate yourself. You need to learn. Um, but on the other side of that, you can contribute value to this space and the evolution of the software, even if you're not a developer. Uh, and I think Max is a great example of that. And I just want to highlight you for that, man, because you, you do a really good job as contributor, uh, despite the fact that you're not a programmer. Yeah, contributing to free software is really, really, really not about writing code. That's maybe 20% of it, probably. Like reviewing the code is another thing, right? Yes, but uh, even that together, the whole coding part, maybe half of the entire experience. Like there is so much again in terms of feedback, right? Of using the software, just you know, telling where the problems are is so important to developers uh, because uh, they oftentimes don't see them. <laughs> so just making them aware that there is a problem and helping to prioritize, the, like prioritizing feature requests, is so 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 important. Um, and if you kind of have that pulse on the, the user base and what they actually want and which problems they need to be solved quickly, right? when you can bring this in and talk to programmers about how to do that right? and, and what the current kind of status quo is that everyone is, uh, is used to, that's super powerful. Like marketing, education, um, even things like, you know, uh, fixing typos. Like that was always the main thing that, that I suggested people like I paid probably a hundred different people just for fixing typos in the Wasabi documentation. Like, because that's an incredibly valuable contribution to a free software project. It's just having a pretty website and, and content that makes sense. And so that's, uh, that's always very important. 
All right. Um, let's talk about some current events, Ben. Do you have the... I can't pull up the Discord because I think it'll break the, the stream right now. Yeah, you mentioned the Yellen crypto tax already. Um, we didn't talk about the hash rate drop. Well, but... let's actually get into the, the Yellen and the Biden thing. Because okay. yeah. I just sort of mentioned it briefly. Um, so if you're not aware, if you live under a rock or you don't live on Twitter like I do, you might not have seen... Um, Biden, forgive me for having to make these politicians relevant, but he, he's proposing um, increasing the ceiling on the capital gains rate for a supposedly small subset of the income distribution. Uh, and, and Yellen made comments about implementing a crypto-specific tax. She called it a crypto-trading tax, so I would imagine it would be uh, an increase on short-term capital gains uh, in the Western markets, and and <laughs> the the other thing that like I should use to sort of provide a little bit of context here is that recently she was talking about a global minimum tax rate for corporations, which is one of the most insane and totalitarian and um, out of touch things I've ever heard a world leader talk about. Uh, because oh, who yeah. are you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Well, she she runs you know the whole world. Did you know that? Hmm. <laughs> and and not to mention like how that would so disproportionately affect like smaller uh, smaller corporations, right? And just further monopolize and and fucking you know it, just stratify the, the the company landscape throughout the world. But but this this just highlights the need for why people need Bitcoin, and not just. Not just that, um, it highlights how early we are because when news like this comes out and the market dips and people are like, well, it's over, guys. They're taxing crypto, quote unquote, into the dirt. It's like you have no idea what you own. You have no idea what you're involved in. Yeah. and But I mean, the beautiful thing, you know, the, the defunding of the nation state is in full swing and Bitcoin is a, is a massive contributor to, the, to that. Like every sat that is currently held um, and saved is actively reducing the amount of theft that is occurring in the fiat system. Uh, it does not have to be reduced much further. The system is incredibly uh, fragile and can and will collapse at an instant. Um, so as soon as there is a, a decent protection rate, it might even be as small as like you know, 10, 20, 30 percent uh, of, of, uh, of like the fiat economy being protected by Bitcoin. That should probably be enough. Uh, to just make the current apparatus illiquid uh, and, and bankrupt. Yeah, that's why the best thing that you can do, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I, I strongly support, you know, transacting in Bitcoin and using Lightning and helping and contributing and using all of these new protocols that are changing the way we exchange value. But one of the best things that you can do to fight this fight is to take some Bitcoin and just put it in cold storage and not touch it for 10 years. But that's not using it, Colin. You're just yeah. No, that that that's that's a fallacy. <laughs> you're absolutely using it. Yeah, I mean, well, you're bootstrapping the liquidity of the network, right? I mean, I had a tweet a few weeks ago that uh, was something along the lines of um, it's actually more valuable to society to hold Bitcoin and bootstrap the liquidity of a sound money that we so desperately need as a global civilization, rather than invest in equity. Uh, in what otherwise might be good companies, but because the 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 malinvestment is so 
um, has such deep systemic rot that it, it's more valuable to hold Bitcoin to society, right? Like we are doing a service to society by not investing in all that fucking malinvestment shitcoin uh, stock market. No, it takes a very special uh, individual with very calculated time preference to be able to take a large amount of capital, put it into Bitcoin, and have they have a strong enough fundamental understanding of what's going on to say, I'm not going to touch this. No matter, I don't care if it gets worth $10 million. I don't care, you know, if I need to... to, to that, that is a difficult thing to do. It requires an immense amount of conviction and understanding. Um, and it's not for everybody. So the people doing that, taking large amounts of capital and setting it aside in Bitcoin and just not touching it, um, they're special people. And they're the ones that are kind of on the front lines fighting this fight. Yes. And of course, if you are in a full Bitcoin mindset, then holding Bitcoin is saving money. right? Meaning that this is the exact opposite of investing. Saving, saving money is the equivalent of saving no to every single investment opportunity out there because it is not good enough, right? So every entrepreneur who tries to sell you the next Lamborghini and shit, you're basically telling him, no, you're not good enough. Come back later. Uh, maybe in the future you do something valuable enough for me to spend my precious Satoshis. At this, this is kind of a, a natural feedback into the market that entrepreneurs are not doing their job well enough. Right, of, of providing goods and services adequately um, and therefore people tend to, to hold their money more. Uh, but you know, ultimately, uh, like, of course you're going to spend your Bitcoin because your time preference is always positive, but you cannot have zero or negative time preference. You will always tend to consume and to invest in production. Right? So yeah. how else are you going to eat? Right? In, in a Bitcoin mindset world, you don't have any fiat currency left to spend. Right? You've already gotten rid of that shit as soon as fucking possible. You're Bitcoin only. Right? All your savings are in Bitcoin. If you want to buy food, you must spend your Bitcoin. There's Yeah, there's two things I want to jump in here with. One, um, as a nice kind of segue uh, that you, you point out about the, the demand to hold cash balances. And Pierre Richard had a really good tweet this week said holding Bitcoin is not just a hedge against inflation or disasters. Bitcoin is a hedge against future uncertainty, including unforeseeable future opportunities for good, right? So, um, and I'll also throw a hat tip to Radical Liberation on, on Twitter. Uh, he also has a YouTube channel. I was watching a stream uh, this week because he tagged me. Um, he had, I don't remember the name of the gentleman, had written a paper and they went into um the reasons people hold different types of money and uh they went into the austrian view that when there is a a poor money in use that people tend to hold quasi monies more and and the, the, you know they elaborated that that's like stocks and, and stuff so the, the the poorer money we have the more we use these other like that are still kind of shit monies but are better at doing other things and in a, in a bitcoin world Right, like we would hold less of those kind of shitcoin quasi monies and and hold more of the good money as a hedge against uncertainty. Right, I don't know. Well, that was relevant. And something I know Max understands because I know he's read the Austrians. Um, and I I love to beat my viewers over the head because it is so obvious. All of you people who follow me on Twitter, which ones of you have read Human Action and which ones haven't, and which ones of you have read Rothbard and which ones haven't. And I'm not saying that to disparage you. I'm trying to encourage you to get out there and, and read these books because they will give you superpowers. 
I know Max understands that everything humans do is speculative, right? You are always, you are constantly speculating on the future, whether you're putting your fiat dollars into your savings account at your local bank, or whether you're holding Bitcoin, everything that you do is speculating about the future because you have incomplete information. Uh, I have a little mini rant on this. Um, can you can you give me the screen share so I can do the... What I can, can you not screen share now? What do I need I to know. do? No, I don't know. If you, if you make it bigger or whatever, but that's fine. So <laughs> Christine Lagarde this week came out. Uh, Christine Lagarde, which to remind everybody at home, was convicted of guilty of criminal charges and will not face any punishment, right? Um, she came out and had a little press conference. So I figured I would just, you know, kind of elaborate on what she said. Uh, we are encouraging people to borrow at low rates in order to invest. They're actually encouraging people to borrow money to invest, right? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, in order to make sure jobs are kept, corporates continue to operate and produce, right? So these corporates that didn't hedge against uncertainty um, can keep keep operating, which to me is just saying, we're gonna keep malinvestment going, right? Because that's that's the way we do things, uh, is clearly a trade-off against some aspects that are resented by those that are only savers and not borrowers. So she is like admitting that her policies hurt people that save money, that, that hedge against uncertainty, that plan uh, just so they can, uh, keep all these malinvestment zombie corporations alive because they, those corporations have no savings and no and all debt because of these policy these types of policies that they continuously uh, perpetrate to to literally um, convince you to to manipulate you into spending your money the way that they feel like it should be spent. It's 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 fucking disgusting. And, right. and not just oh, is it the overconsumption, right? That you are tricked into consuming more than you actually would have otherwise. It also sends a wrong signal to entrepreneurs, giving them a positive feedback, right? More money flowing to them, meaning that is a, a, apparently a positive signal that they're doing something useful in the market, right? That more uh, customers value their services and that their revenues increase, right? Um, so that incentivizes them to keep going down that same path of mal investment that they have been going on for the last 10, 20, 30, 100 years, right? So uh, again, this negative feedback loop is both on the mal investment side as well as the overconsumption side. And both of them together are devastating. And the state must stave off the liquidation of mal investment because the state is the biggest mal investor you know, in the modern world. And this is, like you said, this has been going on for hundreds of years. The state staves off the liquidation of all of this malinvestment because it must do so in order to continue to borrow and spend money that it does not have and allocate capital and resources to things that are not important. Yeah, we've demonized savings as a society and glorified debt. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> Bitcoin fixes this, guys. Bitcoin fixes this. Um, I got another one. <laughs> you, I don't know if you guys saw this or not. Uh, this is pretty funny. So this is a new token I'm watching. Uh, I think it's gonna be awesome. Uh, it's called uh, it's called Scam. <laughs> it, it stands for like super cool something money. Um, super I don't cool know, ass yeah. money, I think, is what it is. Yeah, so, something like that, right? So uh, this scam was launched. Oh, sorry, this scam token was launched 
yes, you can't make this this stuff up, people. Uh, it was like two days ago, one day ago or something, and within an hour, it had a seventy million dollar market cap, um, and uh, it still has a one point three three million dollar market cap, even though it's followed this trend of pretty much every other shitcoin uh, in the world, especially when measured in Bitcoin. Um, and here, I mean, this is another one. Uh, this guy made a crypto coin at a $5.8 million market cap. And the name of it was Sheesh. Uh, so like th these these fucking tokens. Oh, and by the way, the first one, the one, the $70 million market cap uh, that happened within an hour, the dev holds 99% of the supply. Um, th th why am I bringing all this up is because like this is to me just uh, a, a perfect like example of like 99.9% if, if not really all the other shit coins. People just fucking buy these things. They're so illiquid that they can pump and then people buy them more and they have no fucking clue about why they're buying it. That is the majority of the crypto investor market in my opinion. It really speaks to the current state that we're in of just loose money policy that trickles down throughout the rest of society. So, oh, I've got $100? Well, I might as well yellow it in on Dogecoin. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that goes back to my kind of argument about um, what I was saying about quasi-money is where we, we are more incentivized to use quasi-monies when our money is shit. Um, but I, I was also trying to make a bigger point about, like, Bitcoin and crypto. And this is a – I got to throw a hat tip to my friend um, – at what's his name star fury flames on twitter uh, he made this great gif that goes between this one it says what shit coins make you think right because they have this like all these market caps and bitcoin is just a small part of that but in reality like when you actually adjust for like all this stupid scam tokenonomics you can see that bitcoin is really the only thing that fucking matters all these little crypto token uh, you know experiments are are going to zero in bitcoin terms i don't know just wanted to highlight that that's the beautiful thing in a sound monetary economy, right? Things keep getting cheaper. All the shit coins keep getting cheaper. It's great. Yeah, if you just save in Bitcoin and wait 10 years, you'll be able to buy way more Dogecoin. Yes. If that's important to you, owning Dogecoin. You know, someday I'd like to hold, you know, some Dogecoin just to just to say. Uh, it won't exist. No. In 10 years, it won't exist. I, I, not, well, do you even remember the, the bestest thing that ever came out of Dogecoin? And that is the application called the Doge Rain. Have you heard about that? <laughs> no. It's insanely awesome. So this is a geolocational <laughs> wallet, um, meaning that your wallet checks your GPS, right? Uh, and uh, then when on the on the screen you have a stack of Doge coins, right? And now you swipe up, like in in a waving hand motion, and then Doge are being airdropped to the nearest people close to you around and, and now you can actually go into a club right, and stand there swipe your phone and and the doge coins are just raining onto everyone around you uh, i mean that's just the best bitcoin wallet fucking ever full stop period yeah that's amazing uh, and, and i want the same for bitcoin lightning yeah when can we get that on lightning we need that that sounds that sounds kind of complicated to do on lightning though yeah probably I don't know. I would be happy just with the swiping motion for making a donation. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome, dude. Um, you also put a DC fifty first state proposal. Uh, I mean, that was that was just something that I saw happen. Because um, again, like the the more this sh 
dog and pony show goes on, the more I think that these politics are just an irrelevant distraction. Um, but it does sort of give me a feel for the direction that these things are going, which I think is increasingly obvious. Um, what's what's going on in the Western world is no longer, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think democracy doesn't scale, um, and, and what we're seeing isn't really democracy, but I don't even really know what to call it. Like, I think there will be books in the future written about what type of government we're watching evolve in the West and in Canada and, and in some cases in Europe as well. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's paper book fascism. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's monetary socialism, but, really. but it, it has so much more palatability to it than the fascism of days past. Um, it's, it's like soft fascism. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, actually the, the whole monetary socialism, social monetarism thing, was something that I developed actually talking to Max Hillebrand a really long time ago. Mark, we were talking about fascism and is it, you know is is fiat money like a monetary fascist thing? And I think we talked it out and we were like, oh well, it's actually more of like a a, so, a socialist kind of a social monetarism thing. And now Max, I don't know if you know, but like Robert Breedlove independently came to that same conclusion and calls it monetary socialism. So he beat he beat us on the term because uh, that's much better than social monetarism. But uh. I, I, I should throw a hat tip to you because uh, I definitely remember getting on to that when we were talking about uh, monetary economics, Bitcoin. Yeah, and I th I think there are, like in the Austrian view, three kind of different types here, right? The the first one is uh, uh, freedom, right? Individual private property, uh, anarchy, basically. Um, the other extreme is communism, right? Or socialism, where n nobody owns anything, right? Everything is owned by the collective somehow. Uh, and you don't have responsibilities. Um, and in between is somewhat statism or uh, let's say fascism, where there is individual property rights, right? You you do own property uh, on paper at least, not like a complete slave in communism, right? But it is still subject to a whole bunch of government regulation. And like, for example, your house, well, you pay property taxes, right? And uh, this means if you don't pay them, you get kicked out. So ultimately, it's not your house, right? Or there is uh, building restrictions on how exactly you can build there. So again, it's not really your property if someone else can dictate you what to do with it. And then this is a key component of fascism, is intermingling private enterprises with the state. That's the first thing Hitler did, right? Confiscate Volkswagen, a private company, and issue them to build tanks now instead of private cars. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it's sad that you know I, what I always like to point out that anarchy is the default state and capitalism is the default state, right? And that all these other things are the the bastardizations. They are the uh, uh, the things layered on on top that that kind of destroy the the natural state of how humans interact and exchange through mutually beneficial exchange. The that's something that irks me. That's like probably one of my biggest pet peeves is the <clears throat> the way in which the modern lexicon paints capitalism as a system, um, as an emergent system, rather than recognizing it. The, the, the modern state of affairs is crony capitalism, um, and you really need to dig into the history of the Soviet Union communist China to understand the ways in which crony capitalists benefit from having um, 
a monopoly on violence, and in particular in over their localized marketplaces and the ways in which crony capitalists can profit massively. Because um, everyone is a capitalist, right? It's just whether or not you're allowed to express yourself freely um, with your capital in your local jurisdiction. But at the end of the day, everyone is a capitalist. Yeah, and, and long term, uh, crony capitalism is far more profitable than communism. Communism can be <laughs> more profitable in the short term, but eventually society stops producing things because you take out the incentives uh, and the systemic, like, you know, the price system that allows us to collaborate, right, as a, as a society through money. Like, you take that out, and, like, eventually, like, the leech of communism just, like, consumes all the accumulated capital of a system. Uh, so, like, uh, a crony capitalist system, like, it preserves parts of the economy. It preserves parts of this uh, human cooperation that creates abundance. And then it just like extracts out the, uh, you know, the things like kind of under, you know, it's like rug pulling, constantly rug pulling in the in the shadows. Well, and I forget what the exact number is, but that's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. I think it was like 80 to 90 percent of dollars in produced, you know, that that little of a fraction of value for for what um, I think it was Breedlove that was talking about this with um, Lex Friedman, where he said that you would have been better off um, keeping the raw goods in Soviet Union and reselling them at a profit than producing anything from those raw goods because of how inefficient the system was, because they had totally destroyed the price discovery mechanism. Yeah, and, and the black markets are also what kept it up as long as they could. And then, of course, they had to switch back to capitalism. Pretty much the same thing in communist China, where it's like, you know, they had to switch back to capitalism. It's like, a, you know, every single time. Right. It's always just a power grab from those with the monopoly on violence to take control of all of the means of production and all of the resources. Um, and, and alongside that, convincing people through... You know, whatever local manipulative ideology they put in place that this is to their benefits, to give up their sovereignty, to give up their right to personal property, to give up their right to pursue profit uh, through their own activities, and to uh, keep the whole fruits of their own labor. If you can convince people that that's good for them, well, then you collectivize all of that wealth for yourself, whoever you might be, you know, individuals acting in their own best interest, uh, and then they profit off of it at a macro level, at a global scale, rather than uh, allowing you to profit off of the fruits of your labor at the local level. All right, um, can I just real quick uh, throw another hat tip uh, to my buddy Stefan Kinsella. Uh, he wrote a cool article, I don't know if you guys have seen this, um, on uh, the, the idea that basically could governments ban Bitcoin and 6102 it. Um, which is really interesting. I mean, uh, Stefan Kinsella was like interested in Bitcoin back in 2012, but never got really fully into it. Uh, he saw its potential, um, but he, he wrote this article. He's, he's kind of gotten back into Bitcoin now. I've had a few chats with him. Uh, great guy. Uh, he, he writes on the Mises. Um, he has a great piece on intellectual property as well. Um, but I wanted to pull out this piece or this part from the article um, that when they 6102 Bitcoin, uh, something, or sorry, when they 6102 gold, um, they they had to compensate the the uh, American citizens with like an appropriate amount of of dollars, right? So they had to give a fair market value for those dollars. But because they the the gold system was tied into the dollar system, uh, they could manipulate that exchange rate, right? Uh, with Bitcoin, 
Um, he does the math out that they would have to give a fair market value for Bitcoin and they can't manipulate the exchange rate because it's a global decentralized 24-7 market. Um, that, so if, if approximately 20% of Americans hold Bitcoin, uh, that means about 20% of the market cap that would be somewhere between 20 trillion and 200 trillion by the time they cared about it. Uh, it means they would have to compensate Americans alone just for 6102ing Bitcoin between 4 trillion and 40 trillion dollars. Uh, in any case, that would be damn expensive, uh, unpopular politically, and infeasible. Basically, the federal government couldn't afford to outlaw Bitcoin. How's that? Yeah, this is something that I sort of wrote about in Fiat Lux, right? Because the um, the thing that the people don't understand about Executive Order 6102 is that, well, more in particularly about Bretton Woods, is that the U.S. market, the Western markets like U.S. and London had a monopoly on the gold markets through the London Gold Pool, which when Bretton Woods was first started wasn't even operating. Nobody could exchange gold for value other than state sovereigns who were willing to settle in specie uh, throughout most of Bretton Woods' existence. And then when the London Gold Pool did open back up, I think it was in the 50s, Bretton Woods had already been going for like eight years and all they they just fixed the prices and you go look at the um u.s gold treasury reserves during that time period and it just goes from way up here to way down here oh, i still have i'm using my hands to talk and i don't even i'm not even showing up but um they already had a monopoly on global gold settlement because individuals like you and i couldn't even transact and settle in specie it was only res um reserved for the state sovereigns and the United States and London had a monopoly on the gold exchange through the London Gold Pool. Well, but I, I would argue we, we even have a monopoly to a certain extent right now with Bitcoin exchanges. Like these are trusted third parties and all of them are regulated up to their fucking eyeballs. Right? And all of them are actually enforcing draconian measures like KYC and travel rules and all of this nonsense. Right? So a lot of government regulation is in fact already in the system. Right? I, I would not call it a, a full monopoly just because we have weapons of cyberspace like the BISC decentralized exchange right, that leaves all of this nonsense out. So as long as there are still true market alternatives and as long as they are not completely crushed with government force, uh, it's probably not yet a monopoly. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the centralized exchange market is regulated like crazy. We've lost that battle. Right, but Bitcoin itself is not a static thing, <laughs> and neither are the tools surrounding it. Uh, and this is what I find so interesting about Bitcoin's kind of anti-fragility in this particular sense, where you see uh, in the countries where, uh, where the government does crack down more and do more of the types of things that Max is talking about here, that's where we see people push towards hodl hodl and local bitcoins and and bisque and things like that so like the system adapts right that's what that's what bitcoin can do gold couldn't do that uh, bitcoin will just be resilient and like if there's demand for people to leave a country for example or escape a capital control that's just like a, a completely oppressive then those tools will become more easier to use because there'll be demand for them and people will make them out you know make them happen Yep, uh, just depends if the people actually have the balls to use weapons of cyberspace uh, or if they will just cover down and comply. Uh, I, th I think that's the real question. These tools are useless unless you use them. But getting cucked is so much easier, Max. <laughs> you see? I, 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 I guess I'm trying to say, like, if you look at a place like Venezuela or, or Argentina or, or 
Zimbabwe before Bitcoin existed, um, those people are still avoiding capital controls. They're still using the US dollar on the street, right? They're still, you know, it, Bitcoin just makes that much fucking easier, right? And it's Bitcoin is still widely misunderstood in the world world around, but that's changing. And in these countries where these issues are so much more drastic than where you know the places we live in, like Western countries or developed countries, um, the 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 value proposition is obvious, right? And and like life uh, uh, finds a way, right? I think it's interesting that even um, like people with no access to uh, Western banking services or no they're not plugged into like the the fedwire swift system hmm, that's annoying um sorry about that background noise uh the, they still find a way to find liquidity in uh decentralized bitcoin exchange through highly centralized and non um censorship resistant mediums like gift cards on on a network like paxful um bitcoin is remarkably resilient in its ability to find liquidity in any market it's just a matter of whether or not there's enough people willing to participate in it i mean the fact that there are people in third world countries who buy their bitcoin primarily with gift cards is pretty incredible and at a steep uh premium at that please tell me where can i buy gift cards for gold coins <laughs> <laughs> maybe at a pawn shop i don't even know i mean you, like legitimately because everywhere i've been in the world truthfully there is a gold market somewhere right uh, it's just not very ideal to actually get the gold there and then exchange it right because you can't do that in any meaningful amount like if i'm traveling to turkey right i'm not going to be able to have a suitcase full of gold with me but maybe you have an open dime shaft shoved up your butt <laughs> corners rounded for your pleasure <laughs> yeah smooth edges that's what it's all about um do you guys want to talk about the most recent fud uh the <laughs> the hash rate drop <laughs> we can i kind of found that to be a bit of a non-event yeah me too um Look the market, at, looking market. at the chat here. This is why developing countries have better cell phone networks than we, we meaning the West, I assume, married to our older technologies. Uh, the third world will adopt Bitcoin because it is the better option than their own fiat. Do you, Ben? And I, think I will go. I will go even further than that. Not just will they adopt Bitcoin, they will adopt Bitcoin at its peak efficiency. They will be on the bleeding edge. They will be using Lightning Network and side chains and all of the crazy things that we can use much earlier than other areas would. I think we've seen this already, too, with um, mesh networks. Like, a lot of these countries where they're... You're watching mesh networks emerge sort of in real time in a lot of these places that are heavily censored, where people have a difficulty even accessing information. Um, the robustness of digital mediums is, is pretty incredible nowadays that we have things like Gotenna, but I'd like to see that get more resilient than it is today, especially in the West. In the West, I think, is probably the place where it's the most weak. Well, it's, you know, mesh networking isn't easy and it takes time and, and 
I mean, there there are there are examples of it working in larger cities, but uh, it's you know another problem with mesh networking is that the radio waves are are locked down by the government, right? Mm-hmm. So like, and they can be would, easily jammed. Absolutely, um, but you know the technology exists to make net mesh networks work on a large scale. Uh, it's just it's it's just more government intervention that makes it harder, in my opinion. Well, and, and you have a ham radio license, don't you? I do. I do. Have you played around with any type of? I, I'm sure it's it, difficult. So I've I've worked in this realm a little bit, um, but I know that digitizing information and broadcasting it over a radio network is no simple thing. Well, yeah, I mean there there are all these different trade offs and such, but um, what I'm saying is that like you can transmit data over long distances. Uh, the the longer kind of distance frequency that you're using the lower the bit the the data rate in general so like if you really want to get all the way around the world with like you know a relatively small antenna and probably like 100 watts you could do it but you're going to get a lower bit rate in general mm-hmm. uh, you can you can tra- you can transmit really high bit rates but like usually it's a it's a lower but there's a there's a certainly a knee of the curve in there that you know were those things not completely locked down to these very specific frequencies and which modes you can use in those um, you could you could do more with that, right? Yeah, that's something that I've learned um, just through my own experience with working with radios and, and digitized um, radio waves and those types of things. Is that the the higher the frequency, uh, the shorter the range, but the more throughput of the data and the better the connection. Uh, shortwave right. radio is is has a super long range, but it's often finicky and difficult to work with, and has a pretty low throughput, like Ben said. But what I'm saying is that the 802.11 spec that your every single Wi-Fi router uses, um, those things are FCC compliant that none of them can transmit on other frequencies. If you could use that same 802.11 spec on a different frequency, you could increase the range by a whole lot. And thus, yes, you lose a little bit of bandwidth, but it's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're not allowed to use that hardware for that. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, of course. Anyway, um, Max, what else? What do you think? Uh, what did you see this week? Good question. Give you the floor. Or what should what we do you guys think about, about uh, side chains? Oh god, like a uh, RSK and, and Sovereign and stuff. <laughs> I have not used sidechains. I'm sleeping on sidechains. What are you talking about, what, Max? Like liquid or what? Well, I think there are different types of sidechains, but I think the concept is extremely interesting because it's it's a massive improvement to custodianship of Bitcoin. Like we're talking about a money warehouse here, right? It's not you sovereignly yourself holding your keys, but it's you giving custodianship to this money warehouse. Uh, and they have your on-chain parent layer, uh, like basically your Bitcoin. Uh, right. And, and money warehouses are, are can serve a useful purpose in society. And obviously the idea of the side chain as a money warehouse is, a, is, is kind of a mind-blowingly different uh, paradigm from when we talk about uh, money warehouses uh, in the past, where it's literally just a building that holds your stuff, right? Um, but I, I think what you're trying to get at is it's a different trust model than, for example, the Bitcoin network, especially the on-chain network, uh, and that you know trading off that trust model uh, affords you certain liberties. Is that would that be correct? 
Well, I um, I I don't think it's it's that useful to compare sidechains to the base layer, uh, like non-custodial way, because they're obviously non-custodial is is better in many ways. But what I'm more interested in right now is to compare a federated uh, sidechain money warehouse compared to a single custodian money warehouse. I mean, if you deposit your coins to Coinbase, right, what do you get? Like you get one, this one trusted third party holding alone the, these keys, right, and, and moving, being able to move the coins wherever the fuck they want, and in exchange, you get this uh, database entry in the at the Coinbase server, right. That's a very very weak custodianship. That's a bad money warehouse, I would argue. Right, and now compare something like this to, for example, Liquid, right, where you put your your actual Bitcoin in the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, time chain, sorry. You put that in a 11 out of 15 multi-signature, right? So here you don't trust just one entity, but you trust 15 uh, or 11 out of 15 of these federation members, right? And in exchange, you don't you you get a uh, um, a money substitute certificate, as Rothbard would call it, right? Uh, a, a paper certificate, uh, an IOU claim to redeem Bitcoin uh, on demand at par value. I mean, this is the same shit that Rothbard and Mises talked about for so long. <laughs> Money warehouses in a fully back, uh, res like reserve. That is exactly to me what sidechains are applied in a model where we have shared, non-simulated ownership over a scarce asset, Bitcoin, with this eleven out of fifteen multisig. <laughs> and there's a wait. There's a lot of fancy words in there. Mark, Max, can you just explain that really quickly? Just the simulated shared over ownership, because I think a lot of people that might have gone over their heads. Yeah, so the idea is that, I mean, physical ownership, uh, you know, basically means that you control a good and that you can choose how to move it around. Uh, and, and property, in a sense, means that uh, you have like a legal system among monkeys, right, that if we all claim that this is the property of, of someone else, then you would get punished if you try to steal it. Uh, that's uh, th that's like where legal ownership comes in. Um, uh, and this means we always trust on like that that broader society right basically but the beautiful thing of bitcoin is that we enforce or we define verify and enforce these definitions of who can control a bitcoin utxo in this in this unbreakable uh, machine basically right so once you define a certain bitcoin script uh, be this like a single public key or uh, 11 out of 15 multi-signature or some time-locked crazy vault uh, structure. Um, once these definitions are written, they are basically uh, like enforce, uh, enforceable, like they cannot be broken. Right? So they're, n they're not simulated in this construct of just m monkeys talking to each other, right? but it's, uh, it's inherently like guaranteed to be uh, satisfied and, and fulfilled. This, to me, is a really great example and probably a missed opportunity in a lot of debates as to how uh, Bitcoin as a final settlement layer is orders of magnitude more efficient than gold. Um, because Bitcoin is ethereal in the sense, it's almost quantum in a way when you have Bitcoin uh, allocated to scripts like this, like this 11 out of 15 or whatever that you mentioned, um, because it can exist in multiple places at once, in a sense. Right. And not not literally, but in a sense. Uh, and you can't do this with gold, right, because gold doesn't have that ethereal quality, that quantum quality of existing in multiple places at once and dispersed um, 
counterparty risk. Uh, it, it's truly, it's you know, it's frankly, I would say that an 11 key distributed multi-sig contract with Bitcoin, 11 out of 15, is an 11 order of magnitude improvement over such a system with gold. Yeah, and just to keep the uh, the, the physics descriptors alive, um, going from quantum to atomic, uh, not only can you take these liquid tokens and peg them out using this centralized kind of, or semi-centralized uh, federation to peg it back into regular Bitcoins, but um, tools will be developed to allow you to atomically swap them for Bitcoin so you don't have to peg in, peg out, right? And I think in general, like the peg in, peg out thing will, will not be something that's happening constantly. Uh, people would swap them back and forth uh, in atomic sense. You know, and this is, again, this is so similar to what Rothbard always speaks about in his monetary history, right? That that we have uh, gold as base money being deposited into a money warehouse in exchange for a paper certificate, a money substitute, right? Uh, that can be redeemed on demand at par at the bank, right? But this this paper certificate gathers so much trust and reputation that peers even trade it as if it were money. Right, so that you actually accept liquid tokens in exchange for goods and services. Yeah, and just to like break out this analogy a little bit more, basically what we're talking about is if you went back into the 1800s and you had a bank that held the gold in there for you, right? Like this is the paradigm, right? And that bank is x-ray transparent and everybody in the world that's in different locations can see inside the bank at all times and see how much gold they have, where it's going. And also that gold is in a quantum flux state like Colin was describing and it exists in multiple banks all over the world all at the same time. And you can take that gold and trustlessly transport it all around the internet and break it up and put it back together and transfer it and swap it with other things in a cryptographically like quantum flux state all at the same time. it's pretty mind-blowing. Max, I don't know if you got a chance to read my most recent article, Fiat Lux, but this is something that Ben and I talk about a lot because I think it's pretty misunderstood. And Rothbard wrote about this extensively in the history of money and banking, where um, people have such a general misunderstanding of the word fiat and what it means and how it came to be. Um, and I like to say that, you know, fiat money existed, you know, under bimetallism was a fiat money, right? Because you had a premium face value on these exchange rates that gave a, a higher uh, face value to you know the silver coins as opposed to their free market exchange rate between gold and silver in the open market right and we watched this have disastrous effects on economies uh, throughout history and i wrote about this in this article uh, but what what people don't understand is that the way that the the this sort of free banking system pseudo free banking system was co-opted by the state was in the suspension of the redemption of specie and Rothbard talks about this immensely in the history of money and banking, but that's what I always point to uh, Executive Order 6102 and then the end of Bretton Woods. Those were indefinite events of suspension of redemption of specie, which was a practice that had been going on for the last 200 years in the banking system in order to stave off um, the final settlement or the liquidation um, of these banknotes, right? Yes, exactly. That's so spot on, right? And there's a huge risk of this happening again in Bitcoin, right? And first of all, it will happen initially in those single custodians, right? Mt. Gox or like Coinbase or like Kraken, right? These these single huge custodians are at huge risk uh, for for that their IOUs, uh, their their de- uh, their demand deposit uh, in exchange for Bitcoin is not accepted, 
uh, by government coercion, right? And even sidechains will probably suffer the same fate, right? That eventually all these 15 federation members will be compromised, right? And, uh, and, and will be forbidden to pay out or to pack out these on-chain Bitcoin to the owners of the IOU token. Uh, that's a huge risk. Um, there are, however, nice ways to have uh, trustless, decentralized, non-federated sidechains. Um, space chains and soft chains are the ones that are most interesting here. Uh, and here you can actually have, um, uh, uh, you know, a arbitrary sidechain with a with or without a native token, uh, where you can pack in and pack out uh, out of the uh, uh, sidechain um, back onto the parent blockchain. Um, but it takes a long time. That's kind of the downside here. So it might take you a year to actually withdraw and redeem your money um, proper after you give in your money substitute. So this might be one of the differences where it's actually not a money warehouse with receipts payable on demand, but payable on demand plus one year. And I would add um, that at least at least what we have now going for us with Bitcoin is that it's much harder to obfuscate uh, final settlement, uh, at least for now. Right. At least under the current paradigm and the current way that we understand Bitcoin. And this might change. Right. Depending on how, how nation states choose to react um, to the ordering of transactions by miners and and you know, what way nation states choose to approach this, the, ne the network might evolve certain um, censorship qualities, right? And and this is a whole other conversation that we could get into about fee markets and, and white markets and gray markets and black markets. Um, but what, at least for now, what, what Bitcoin has going for it is that there, it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, currently to restrict final settlement, quote unquote, redemption of specie or like settling on the bitcoin blockchain right that's our current equivalent of settlement in specie uh to restrict that like they did with gold where they were able to co-opt final settlement uh you know under Bretton woods it was only the state sovereigns who could settle at the base layer uh bitcoin enables anybody uh who is an active participant in the network to settle to the base layer to quote unquote redeem the specie and but by, by the way just quick aside but I think this is exactly the point where Roger Ware went crazy with a reduction or with, with a fixed limit of the block size, right? Because he was like, this means that less people can redeem species, right? Given that there is just a limited supply of, uh, of possible transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, th this is, I think, exactly the crux of the issue that got him. Hmm. That's a good point. So what would you say to that, Max, that in maybe five years, what if it, it costs, you know, $100 worth of today's USD value to send a transaction or $200? Does does that make it harder for, for people, you know, that are making much less money? Or, or does do those people, are they using Lightning Network that's fueled by, you know, channel factories that so we're not worried about it? Or they're using Liquid or something like that? I think that economists focus a lot of their analysis on making the payments, right? That's a lot of the entrepreneurial viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But I think from a technological viewpoint, making payments is trivial. We figured out making payments on the internet with what, 1990-something with Jomin eCash, <laughs> long before that probably. So making payments is easy. What's difficult is verifying payments. Right? And, and this is where the actual challenge of Bitcoin comes in. 
right? So verifying a global state of transactions is the genius of it. Uh, and there, it, verifying is much more difficult than spending, especially if you need to verify the entire history, right? So here is why we do have an active constraint on the transaction throughput, not because we want to limit the number of people who make transactions, but because we must limit the amount of data that needs to be verified by every serious participant of the network. Right? This is the this is where the pure economic viewpoint of Bitcoin will mislead you. If you don't understand the tech, right, this is where you will think, oh, this is a centrally managed uh, a maximum supply of an important good. This is socialism. This is stupid, right? But when you have the technological views that, that no verifying transactions is more important, and there it is reasonable, but probably to be honest, two megabyte blocks is probably way too fucking large. Like I'm, I'm seriously contemplating that. Okay, maybe a hundred kilobytes per block it might be more reasonable. Like, uh, if if we really want to continue be, to be able to verify in the long term the Bitcoin blockchain. And and I would add um, that Bitcoin, the way that it functions, it it's limited by our current ability to tap into the limits of physics, right? And the same, it's like, and it and it is not necessarily the throughput of the Bitcoin final settlement. Is, is not good or bad, it just is, based on the, the confines that we must operate within um, through the parameters of our global data networks, right? It, it's like saying, oh, you know, the speed of sound is too low. We, our planes need to be able to go faster. And you say, well, you know, that is not, like, yes, whether that's true or false, like, it doesn't matter, but we're limited by our current ability to operate within the context of physics and the laws that govern the universe, right? It, it's, it is, and we must respect that until we're able to develop uh, mechanisms that allow us to transcend our current understandings and technological abilities to overcome problems. Yeah, I just, I just want to add on what, what Max was saying too, uh, that the, the, the reason that you have to understand it not as a purely economic thing is because of uh, essentially the Bitcoin spectrum, right? That, that the properties that we are uh, championing in Bitcoin, um, like decentralization, censorship resistance, are, are emergent properties that are dependent upon other things, like the fact that the chain is auditable, right? And this is why Bitcoin survived and Bitcoin Cash is crashing and burning. It's because it abandoned the thing that gave it value in the first place um, to solve a problem that in its immediacy might have seemed to certain observers uh, a necessity actually destroyed its fundamental value proposition, which is like which what are, Max was saying, verification. Who, yeah. Who's actually running a Dogecoin node? <laughs> <laughs> like 10 people, I think. <laughs> I'm sure that's a huge overestimate. <laughs> I see this. That's like my biggest criticism about to the shitcoiners who are like, oh, no, because lightning is the silver to Bitcoin's gold and lightning or all of these innovations are happening on all of these other tokens. I'm like, really? Really, how many of you are actually participating in the distributed consensus? And that's when the eyes glaze over. Well, it's funny, too, because like some of these things that we're talking about is like, well, how decentralized is decentralized enough? How verifiable is verifiable enough? How much fees? Because that's that's the other time I've heard somebody say we should decrease the block rate. Uh, block size is to uh, increase the fees amount so that when the you know the mining subsidy goes away that we'll have enough fees so like and and nick nick carter did a great talk on mining fees in bitcoin a few years ago mit bitcoin expo 
Um, so yeah, these, these things, there aren't any, like they're abstract kind of concepts that we have to kind of suss out as a community and find consensus on. <laughs> yes, very difficult. But I think the, the gist is that uh, it's much smarter to think about how can we make more economical transactions while relying less on global verification of the Bitcoin network. I think this is so interesting. This is why a Lightning Network specifically is so fascinating. We have individually solid and secure and non-custodial and censorship-resistant payments that work, even though not everyone verifies these payments. Mm -hmm. right? Most of the channel updates to your uh, channel do not get published and nobody else needs to care about them. They just work because of the cryptography and the, the crypto economics that are being applied here. Right? And uh, to an extent, sidechains are a bit similar here, right? It's, uh, of course, it goes down the custodial route, but, but nevertheless, it expresses a lot of economical activity while only using a very small amount of uh, parent layer blockchain space. That's a really good point. And we must change the way that we think um, about what's possible with this new technology. Uh, Totally, the way the world will look in ten years is, has to be totally different than it is today, um, because we're. we're I, th I still think in a lot of ways we're stuck in thinking of the old ways, um, thinking around, uh, thinking or th rather thinking without this cryptographically verified final settlement network. Right, we have to evolve new ways of using this technology to do like what you're saying, like settle with payments with Lightning, um, federated side chains. All those types of things, those are going to continue to increase in relevance, I think, as we move forward. Yeah. And by the way, I think this is also, again, why we had uh, digital bearer certificates like Tromi and eCash since like 30, 40 years. Right? And we could have built something like this already in Bitcoin since 2009. Right? The tech was literally there, ready to be used, the Bitcoin-backed DBC. The reason I think why it was not done or, or why it was not successfully done, at least, uh, is, again, not because of transactional privacy and speed, but because of the verification, verification downsides of that. You cannot audit the total supply of, uh, of tokens in a DBC uh, blind signature scheme, while in a sidechain based scheme with a blockchain based consensus verification or consensus mechanism, a user can indeed verify the total quantity of the paper certificates that are being uh, issued. Uh, and that is something that is extremely interesting because, again, that prevents fiat money from going from from reaching into existence right? from the supply of the money substitutes increasing without the, the base money uh, being held in reserve. And this is something I just thought of, too. If you're a part of the Federation, um, you're incentivized to make sure that everyone else in the Federation is also acting um, honestly in terms of what their liabilities are uh, that they've issued, right? Because you have skin in the game. Does that make sense? You yes, have skin basically. in the and you have skin in the game in the sense that you're um, you have a claim on the underlying collateral, right? And so if the liabilities that are issued against your a collateral that you're participating in and you hold a key to in this multi-sig federation, you are incentivized to keep the other participants honest in this system or else you will go down with them, so to speak. Yes, exactly. 
it's a somewhat of a, a shared responsibility and that's maybe a bit similar to insurance uh, type of models right where you kind of have insurance that uh, like everyone um, has to pay up yeah probably the analogy breaks down I wonder if you could ever have a federated sidechain like Liquid, and then but only use um, pseudonyms over Tor, so that there was no um, no head to bite you know, to to cut off the dragon, and it was just a bunch of uh, anonymous heads online that uh, you couldn't couldn't find. Because you you mentioned that was kind of an attack vector potentially, Max, about the uh, you know the thirteen out of fifteen or whatever it is. Uh, could could that be done? Uh, yes, I mean you could. You know, I, I I'm not sure, but I believe actually that the code for the Liquid Federation is not on uh, not free software. Ah. Uh, it runs on some hardware secure modules and stuff, so it's some proprietary stuff. Um, but in theory, yes, you can run your own sidechain on your own Raspberry Pi if you want to, right? The question is, is someone going to use it and right. by the large on-chain cost for doing so? Because the um, because they don't have the, uh, the the reputation at stake as much. They don't have as much skin in the game because they're just pseudonyms, and you could burn them, and there could be a rug, rug pull, I guess. Well, they're, exactly. their paper right, claims so... still need liquidity, right? Someone has to be willing to accept their their liabilities as money. Yes, and I, I think this is why a, the kind of soft chains uh, approach is more interesting because this removes... A trusted third party to be the custodian. So instead of putting your money into a eleven out of fifteen multi-signature, you put your money into a contract, uh, like into a script that can only be spent if the consensus of the soft chain uh, is also verified. Um, so this means that. A full a Bitcoin full node must also verify the consensus of the soft chain. Right? That's why it's a soft fork chain. It's like the the Bitcoin full node needs to verify the consensus of that soft fork, and there need to be a certain type of transaction that kind of anchors the soft chain back into the parent chain, and you can only make this transaction if you provably burn tokens on that soft chain. So only if you destroy tokens on the soft chain can you prove to the bitcoin base layer nodes that this is a, a valid uh like creation of or spending of bitcoin out of this soft chain fund because some space or soft chain tokens were burnt so this removes the trusted third parties in the in in the custodianship of this money warehouse but rather it utilizes any consensus mechanism that you can come up with uh, to replace the condition when the coins can be spent out of custody. Uh, man. <laughs> I can't even follow all that, Max. <laughs> it's probably very convoluted. But, but like, that's the fucking crazy thing is, yeah. like, again, we can have custodianship in a money warehouse without any single party being, uh, like, having single access to, to this money. Like not even in a federation, but where the entire, the uh, like the the entire property rights of who can spend those Bitcoin in custody of those who hold the the token, the the money certificate, right? That where that itself can be a entire consensus system, um, uh, like in, even in its own blockchain. But uh, but Bitcoins can't scale, right? That's what I heard. <laughs> 
Yes. Boiling the oceans, guys. <laughs> Boiling the yep. oceans. Mm-hmm. Just remember what what's really going on here. All right. Yeah, but I'm I'm just kind of ashamed for how we've used the Bitcoin blockchain in the past. Like, <laughs> fuck. Like, this is such a monumental tool, and we use it to, you know, buy so, coffee for fucking five bucks from Satoshi a Dice. Okay. <laughs> fucking, so don't even get me started on Satoshi hey, Dice. Hey, there's no right or wrong uses of the blockchain. Anybody that pays for it, paid for it. It's not that you're wrong. It's just that you're an asshole. <laughs> well, I I defend my right to be an asshole. <laughs> no, it's, but it's like you know, driving a tank to the uh, to the grocery store. I mean, sure you can do it, right? But it's just incredibly w- wasteful. Um, but but even you know, back in the days, there wasn't even a demand to make all of this. So, you know, meh, but Max, we still have to verify it all. Max, is using the block space an aggression because I'm taking that block space that you can't use now? Uh, it's, it's a potential conflict. Oh. And that's what makes block space scarce, is because there is a potential conflict over who can write his bytes into the certain part of the Bitcoin block. Scarcity in cyberspace, fucking beautiful. <laughs> Well, guys, we've been going for, I think, about an hour now. Uh, any Anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Get yourself some beef jerky. Turkey jerky, duck jerky, uh, pork jerky, any type of jerky. It's delicious. Yes, and I, I've heard that you can actually use Bitcoin miners to dry the beef out uh, to make your own jerky. So that's uh, just, you know more efficient that way so that's the free market we'll solve that one for you too <laughs> does any if anybody's interested i'd like to start a bitcoin mining slash jerky drying venture um, yes please inquire please. in my twitter dms if you'd like to be an angel investor please reach out reach out to reach out to me because i'll undercut colin or whatever percentage he's giving you <laughs> well max thank I you i just want someone to make me a lot of jerky yeah, as long as I get that, that's great. And if I even get Bitcoin and jerky, I mean, fuck yeah. That's mutually beneficial exchange right there. Max, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, dude. I love hanging out with you. You always blow my mind in some way. So Yeah, this was fun. Thanks, Max. Yeah, it was, was great. Again, man, you're, you're doing amazing work with what the fuck happened in 1971. The site is amazing. Like, it's it's a meme. It's a good one. Uh, and it's catchy. And I think it, it leads... It leads people to asking the right questions, and that's a very, very good skill uh, that that you have showed here. So well done. Thank you. That means a lot. Ben and I just got really lucky with it. <laughs> 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 All right, I'm gonna stop it there. <laughs>